There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to learning economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 33 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, September the 15th. First, I'll be talking to Belinda Sinclair, Head of Sales and Agent Partnerships at Domain, who is responsible for revenue across Domain residential business, product acquisition, and who is a single point of contact relationships for customers, residential agents. I'll be talking to RMIT Professor Sinclair Davidson about the intergenerational report. But first, let's talk to Belinda Sinclair. Well, Belinda, you're the Head of Sales and Agent Partnerships, which uh, puts you as a single point of contact relationship with customers who are your residential agents. Is that right? That's correct. So tell us, how does that work? So this is a, a new model we set up earlier in the year, really focusing on how we better serve our customers, understand the customer needs, and appropriately make sure that we tweaked the, the service model, looking at the types of customers they had, the types of products, the size and scale of the business, are they corporate, national companies, or a local real estate agent, and make sure we, we look to differentiate the service model based on their needs and the suite of solutions that we could offer. So my job is to head up the different divisions across our national corporate department, our sales team who are face-to-face with customers. And we've also um, established a a model where we can service customers more remotely as well by the phone and yeah, hangouts like this as well. It's quite remarkable because you're customers are real estate agents, but there are so many different types of real estate agents. I mean, there's some big corporates and there are small solitary operators. There are family businesses. How do you manage all of that? I think that's been the big difference. I've been at Domain for for just over 10 years and and that's been one of the things I've seen change significantly. When I started, there was a a lot more, you know, mum and dad, local real estate agency set up at the, you know, on the corner of of each suburb. And we've seen a lot more consolidation of businesses over the last four years, few years, um, a lot more corporatization of businesses as well. And I'll, I'll use some examples. You know, we know the likes of Ray White, McGrath, LJ Hooker, the really large brands that are running nationally. And we need to have a different relationship with those corporate teams than we do with the local McGrath agency um, in the local suburb. And 
the, the needs and, and what they require in terms of what they're setting up and, and what's their goals in terms of the service model they, they target with their vendors and, and buyers has been very different. And so, yeah, that's been one we've been trying to adapt to over the last few years. And we really thought it was time to adapt our internal model to make sure we could reflect what the changes in the industry. How do you do that? <laughs> so with a lot of people <laughs> for start. So I've got a, a team of around a, a hundred sales people and sales support nationally. So we have hubs set up around all, all states and we're just working towards bringing on a, a new New Zealand team as well, which is exciting. But what we we really like to reflect how how the customer works, and that's our goal in trying to move move to a space and move to a model where we reflect how they work. So we have, uh, I'll use the local agency, so an account partner within my team uh, will go and, and visit with that local agency, understand, you know, how, how's the market going? What are the needs from both the business solutions or marketing solutions? What do they need help with growing their business, expanding their business, retention of talent, trying to uh, attract the next listing and then serve up solutions? And then similarly, if we're talking or working with a corporate brand, it might be very much focused on brand awareness as they move into different markets, uh, a lot around retention strategy and attraction strategy to try and win new agents and, and new businesses over to that brand. And so, yeah, our teams are, are set up with goals and KPIs working around, around those and, and just work on the model of whether it's by phone, by hangout, <laughs> dropping into their office or booking sort of large corporate meetings to, to solve those problems. That means you have to talk to each and every agent. We do. So there's over, it's a bit wishy-washy this data, um, but over 10,000 agencies nationally, over 40,000 agents that we work with. So very focused on, yeah, <laughs> what's that level of repetition that they, you know, someone who's very engaged and focused on growing the business might want to talk to us once every two weeks, once a month, other businesses uh, may be happy to just keep in touch to, to solve some little problems once or twice a year. I would imagine data would be quite critical for something like that. That's been a, a huge shift. I know we're, we're all experiencing. I think making sure we've got the, the data to make sure we, we set up and have an understanding of the businesses in terms of before you even pick up the phone to speak to a customer, these days, customers expect you to know a lot about their business already. Um, and I think that's because of this expansion of, of data. And we've been very focused on setting up models internally on, on self-serve data that we can run some analysis on a, a business, a real estate agency we're about to go in and meet with, understand their market share, the number of listings they've put up for sale, for sold, how many days have their properties been on market and, and how much have they sold for? Have they lost agents, brought on new agents? So we've really shifted that much of what my sales team focuses on, the conversation is around data and insights and, and less about selling. That's fascinating because, uh, I mean, Domain, I remember when it started off years ago in the Fairfax days, it was very much a classifieds business. It was. And now it seems to have become a data agency. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, our, our aspiration has been to become a marketplace around all things property. And I think it's definitely moved from most people know Domain in terms of 
you know, our listing platform or our app. Um, that's where you go to, where, to buy and sell property, to rent property. But very much a lot of our growth has happened over the last few years in how we serve up data in terms of delivering insights, whether it's to a consumer and we're, you know, really excited. We're just updating our app at the moment. So a, a prospective buyer going into the app looking for property can actually get data insights and market insights served up to them around the kind of area they're looking to buy in, what's, what's the average price. And so I think it's that education piece that's really developing. People expect to self-learn and, and, you know, ingest that data and insights so they're better prepared and better educated on that property process. And one of our newest products that we've just launched is LeadScope, which is actually a a program where we go in and help clean up the database or the CRM of an agency and help them find within their own database who are the customers who are looking to potentially sell first, um, sell soon so they can make a call. So there's a, a lot of focus about data and domain given our assets across the partnership with, with Nine, all the data that we ingest across our app, the interactions across our print platforms as well. We know a lot of people and have a lot of data. That's quite remarkable. Now, so that would actually give you a lot of insight into all the big trends in the market too. Yes, correct. <laughs> and, you, and you would be ahead of all the stuff. So, I mean, when you ever go to a barbecue, you, you've always, uh, there's always talk about what's, what's selling and which houses are going and what they went for and everything like that. You guys would be right across that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sometimes I, I get tripped up at the barbecue when someone references a, a, a local market in northeast Queensland that I haven't heard before. And But we could certainly look up the data if we had a free warning. And I mean, I spend much of my day deep in the data. A lot of conversation at the moment is trying to understand listing volumes. And we saw a very challenging market over the last 12 months, particularly in, in Sydney and Melbourne for, for much of the year and more recently in Queensland with listing volumes 20 and 30% down in, in some of those inner metro markets, which was very challenging for for agencies who work on, you know, expected quantities. And, and then really interesting to watch over the last few weeks. In Sydney, for example, we start to see listings up 5 to 10% in some of those markets. And so that's one of the metrics we watch very closely. Obviously, yeah, but on the tails of what's happening with interest rates and inflation and, and how that affects confidence and consumer behaviour and that fly, flows right through to buyer behaviour and, and vendors being confident enough to put their property on the market. More critically, it also says that Domain is a key partner with all the agents working with them. We hope so. I mean, that's something we've been very focused on. There's been some nervousness across the industry over the last few years, wondering as technology, as AI comes to fruition and, and develops, how do we help serve that and, and, and build solutions and, and products that can really leverage that to still maintain the, the presence and the requirement of a real estate agent and a real estate agency. And that's been our goal in every decision, whether it's deciding between what product we launch or what we, you know, the service that we provide, how do we add that layer of lens? Okay, if we roll this out, is that seen as in partnership or will it be seen as competitive behavior that we roll out? And, and being very mindful that we want to, yeah, work alongside the industry and alongside the agents as partners. And, and I think it's key to that partnership as, you know, you touched on making sure we're supporting them with 
with insights and solutions that help them grow their business. Because a lot of the agents themselves would be would have instruments like data and they would also be using AI as well. Correct. So how do you work your technology in with theirs and, and so that they don't see it as being competitive? We're pretty agnostic in terms of a lot of our solutions will plug into other providers as well. And so we've been you know, really mindful of, obviously, we want to build products and solutions that are best in class, but we also know sometimes products work better together. And, and if an agency has a, has a great platform that they've built, we want to look at how do we, yeah, not compete with that, but could we plug in ours into their own program and does that supercharge the results? And, and that's something that we've done with a lot of our products, particularly around data and insights is looking at that connectivity and working with, yeah, other companies and other products that could be seen as, as competitors, but also maybe there's a, a, a path and opportunity for both by utilising different AI and um, different technology and insight to build those. So yeah, we've worked on a principle of an open, open ecosystem. So agencies can plug in their own solutions. They can pick from domain solutions on, on those that make sense and hopefully add value to their business as well. So domain's main thrust then is, well, three things, data, partnerships, and uh, and connectivity. Correct. Yes. And I, I think that's the principle that we try and run the business by, but also make sure we cast that lens over every time we're building a solution to make sure it's going to yeah, add a layer to connectivity, add a layer to insight, add a layer to partnership as well. Well, Belinda, that's been fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Leon. It's been great to have the conversation. And now let's talk to RMIT Professor Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair, what's your take on the intergenerational report? I think like so many of them that have come out over the last few years, it contains lots of facts and figures and diagrams and scary horror stories without actually telling a narrative. So we've been told things such as we're going to have 40 years of of budget deficits. The Commonwealth is always going to have a a bigger liability on its balance sheet than its assets, that the economy is going to grow by so much, but productivity isn't. All of these sorts of things that people are going to be focusing on are not actually the real story around uh, intergenerational reports. If you have a look at the diagrams, you will see very often in the forecasts, in about two years' time, they always have a straight line. So more or less, what they are saying is, if the economy grows like it is at this very instant for the next 40 years, what will things look like? And then off of that, we get all these horror headlines. And I kind of think that that's very misleading and actually very uninteresting. What's your take on the figures? I mean, they're quite horrific. Aren't they? Oh, they're, they're, they're absolutely appalling. And they're supposed to be appalling. This is not unusual. This is not strange. So first thing to think about is the Treasury has got a horrendous track record in forecasting the future. And that could be seen as a bit of a criticism, and I suppose it is. But in actual fact, most of us are pretty bad at forecasting the future. The other thing is that we also know that right now our economy is in a very unusual combination state of affairs. We're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, We've been running budget deficits for the last, what, 15 years or so. And if we simply extrapolate that forward, yes, we're going to continue doing this. The far more interesting thing 
thing about these intergenerational reports is what they were originally intended for was for the government to actually start telling a narrative around what its economic reform policies are going to be. This intergenerational report, like almost all of them, does not really have that. So the intergenerational reports, to remind ourselves, were introduced by uh, Peter Costello in the mid-noughties. And he introduced them because he wanted to tell a story about how we should set up a future fund to 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 fund the uh, superannuation liabilities of the Commonwealth government. And so he, he got this report going and he did that. Now, there's been a lot of debate, should we dissolve the future fund or shouldn't we over the last week or so? My, my personal opinion is we should not. But he actually used the intergenerational report to sort of introduce a very forward-looking policy. Every other treasurer since Peter Costello, be they Labour or Liberal, have kind of used the intergenerational report to justify current government policy. So if you have a look in the current intergenerational report, what it talks a lot about is climate change and net zero. Now, I don't want to upset people. There are a lot of good arguments for net zero. There's a lot of good arguments against it. People can quibble, is this good policy? Is this bad policy? Should we do it? Shouldn't you? And so on and so forth. I mean, this is a reasonable grounds for debate. There is one thing that net zero will not do. It will not contribute to future productivity. Now, we have this bad habit of whatever topic we're talking about at the time, whatever current policy the government is pushing fits into that topic. Net zero does not fit into a productivity debate. It may fit into all sorts of other debates. And as I say, there are good and bad reasons to do it. It's got nothing to do with productivity. So why would you bring that in? So unfortunately, the intergenerational report process has been hijacked by current political objectives. Mr. Chalmers yesterday did not come out with a, here's our intergenerational report. This is what we should be doing for people in 40 years time now. That is not what he did. And and that is why I think this whole process has been hijacked. Well, the intergenerational report raises a whole lot of important issues. And one is about taxation. Yes. And Chalmers didn't go down that path at all. No, he does not want to. Before he even uh, discussed uh, the intergenerational report last week already, the government was coming out and saying, we've got no big tax reform agenda ideas. Now, to be quite honest, and to be fair to them, I, I don't know what more they can tax. There isn't actually very much that in the Australian economy that is left untaxed. What they can do if they really want to have more money is raise rates. Mm. Um, that is one argument. Uh, there's another argument, of course, if they want to raise more money, they should change the mix of taxation in Australia. Nobody wants to do that because that means changing the GST. And the GST has become the third rail of tax policy in Australia. Anybody who goes near the GST gets absolutely slaughtered. They could do other things. The Labour Party tried that at the 2019 election. Was 19? Yes, the 2019 election. And they very unexpectedly lost. So you can't just turn up and say, we're going to change the tax system. Yeah, Mr. Chalmers has got to make an argument for changing the tax system. Equally good, we could make an argument for changing spending, which also they don't really want to do. So the fact of the matter is right now, our policies are loading up our children, who are going to be adults in 40 years time, uh, with a great level of tax liabilities because there's all this debt. We've already got massive levels of debt. 
it because of our policies around uh, um, how we fund higher education these kids have got a hex debt because of our expensive housing prices these kids have got a mortgage debt so we're actually pushing a lot of debt into the future to fund what is really our current consumption right now now, if Chalmers had turned up yesterday and said, look at all this debt, we have got to stop loading our children up with debt, then that is what the intergenerational report is going to, it should be used for. It's not doing anything along those lines. If you have a look at the productivity challenges, they say productivity is going to be declining. And, and I think everybody agrees with that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The only solution they have to doing anything about productivity is to increase population. Now, I have to say, again, I don't want to upset people. I'm a huge fan of increasing the population through the natural means and, of course, via immigration itself. So I think this is a really good idea. But in and of by itself, it's bad economic policy to simply say we're going to solve productivity problems by growing the population. We've also got to solve the productivity per worker problem that we have. Indeed. And uh, but the government, in fact, no government has come near that. I mean, John no. Howard tried it a bit with work choices, but that yes. didn't work, of course. It and uh, but But we need some changes to lift productivity. Could be through the industrial relations system, could be through a whole lot of further microeconomic reform? I would go down the microeconomic reform route. Um, the problem with doing things through the industrial relations system is that we had work choices, which, you know, you could always make an argument it was a step forward, mm. but the foot taking that step forward was wearing a jackboot, mm. which nobody, you know, it, it was, I, I just don't know what they were thinking. In response to that, uh, the Labour Party, when they've been in government, have been taking us backwards in mm. terms of IR. I mean, we are now at the pre-Keating era of, of, of IR reform, which I also don't think is, is an advantage. Unfortunately, there seems to be this lack of imagination in Canberra that uh, you can only do worker productivity through the industrial relations system. Uh, whereas there's a whole bunch of things that are very exciting that are happening right now. For example, the digital revolution. You know, you could have greater productivity gains from more people working at home. That is something that we've involuntarily exper uh, experimented with over the last few years. Nobody wanted to work from home, or certainly no company wanted their employees to work from home until COVID came along. Well, you know, there are ways of doing this. We could lean more into the digital economy. Um, if, if you have a look at the intergenerational report, it does show that the digital economy is kind of growing more. 
they also make the argument about how we've got uh, the, the number of older people in the economy is going to be increasing over time. But older people can work in the digital economy. It may involve a, a, a bit more retraining or different training or different ways of thinking about doing work that don't necessarily involve the industrial relations system. The other thing is if we're moving to a more flexible economy, uh, uh, Mr. Burke's idea that came out yesterday or the day before about how are we going to ban bosses from contacting their workers out of hours well the whole idea of office hours may become very quickly redundant in a digital economy i, I don't know about you but i actually like working late at night um, i don't really enjoy early mornings you know so if all that we are doing is if, if you're actually buying people's output as opposed to buying their time at a particular time of the day these are things we should be thinking about not whether or not you know you've got to clock in at nine or you know can your employer ask you to stay to five past five and all this sort of stuff um, which is sort of the traditional way of doing things so there's a lack of imagination around these intergenerational reports that kind of limit their their usefulness so basically what this government or any government should be doing is actually looking at structural changes to our taxes, a la something like the GST, or and also microeconomic reform in uh, utilising the digital economy. Well, I, they need to at least talk about structural changes to the, to, to, to the tax system. I would start looking at, 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 at expenditure. What is it that the government is spending money on that they don't need to be spending money on? And off the top of my head, uh, those nuclear submarines. We do not need to spend money on nuclear submarines. I, I simply do not understand. We do not have a domestic nuclear industry. We do not have workers trained in nuclear technology. So this whole notion that we are going to be building nuclear submarines in South Australia is just simply nonsense. We are going to import Americans to build American-designed submarines in South Australia, maybe, and then we are going to hire American crews to crew these submarines that we are paying the Americans for, um, that they should be paying us to harbor their fleet in our waters if that is what we wanted to do. So off the top of my head, there's going to be a huge expenditure on these nuclear submarines 20, 30 years down the line that we could draw a line through right now and actually turn what is an expenditure to us into a revenue opportunity. So that sort of thinking is where we should be going. Well, Sinclair, those are fascinating ideas. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the US and EU have backed the development of a new ship and rail corridor connecting India to the Middle East and the Mediterranean Sea in a challenge to China's economic clout in the region. The plan wants launch on the sidelines of a G20 summit in New Delhi on the weekend through a memorandum of understanding agreed by leaders, including US President Joe Biden, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who all shook hands at the end of the event. The proposed corridor would stretch across the Arabian Sea from India to the United Arab Emirates, then cross Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Israel before linking up to Europe. Talks about such a project, which would also include a new undersea cable and energy transport infrastructure, have been going on behind the scenes between the countries involved for months, but they will now proceed on a more formal basis. No binding financial commitments were made but the parties agreed to come up with an action plan over the next 60 days. For the US, the project could act as a counter to Beijing's growing influence in the region at a time when Washington's traditional Arab partners, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia, are deepening ties with China, India and other Asian powers.
And the worst budget pain is yet to come for many households around the country, and many economists are not expecting interest rates to move from their current 12-year high for nearly a year. In Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe's final meeting, the bank's board decided to leave the official cash rate at 4.1% for the third consecutive month, as economic data shows inflation is still high, but falling. Most economists expect incoming Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock to keep interest rates at 4.1% for the near future, but some expect the first cuts to be early next year, while others believe it could be more than 12 months before homeowners see any reprieve. Independent economist Chris Richardson said many Australians are yet to feel the worst of the economic pain. I think overall pain gets worse from here, he said. He noted the unemployment rate is expected to rise from its current rate of 3.7% to 4.4% by the end of next year, and those people who lose work will be the most badly affected. Households still on ultra-low fixed-rate mortgage terms will take a financial hit when they roll onto higher variable rates in coming months, and the third most affected are those who received the federal government's low- and middle-income tax offset last year, known as the Lamington, who will not get that cash injection this year now that the program has ended. I think it's a correct policy to have done away with the Lamington, but that is a lot of money, 11 or $12 billion, that was in pockets last year in July, August, September, not in pockets this year, Richardson said. Richardson does not expect interest rate cuts to start until at least the end of next year, and one major reason for that is the economic stimulus coming on July 1st, 2024, when the stationary tax cuts come into effect. Those cuts will boost the take-home pay of all workers earning over $40,000 a year, but will predominantly benefit those earning more than $180,000. We're 12 months and maybe more away from rate cuts, he said. And one of Queensland's most iconic tourism assets, Hamilton Island, could hit the market with an asking price of around $1 billion, seven years after its purchase of Bob Oatley passed away. The family is best known for their extensive history in the winemaking industry and for winning the Sydney to Hobart yacht race nine times. But its investment in Hamilton Island, which is expected to be worth about $1 billion, appears to have been fruitful. In a statement late, late Sunday night, the billionaire Oatley family said that while it had been a proud steward of Hamilton Island for 20 years and has invested significant time, affection and resources to deliver its vision for a world-class tourism destination on the Great Barrier Reef, it was now looking to the future. We have put in place a new leadership and approach and are conducting a review with the assistance of our advisors to explore opportunities for growth and future prosperity, a spokesman for Hamilton Island said. At this stage, this review is ongoing and no decisions have been made. We do not intend to comment further until recommendations have been considered. However, informed sources say that Wind Sunday's island had been quietly shopped around the market quite recently, following a strong domestic holiday season. Other Queensland islands, such as South Mole Island, were also on the block. Since Mr Oatley acquired Hamilton Island in 2003 for around $200 million, the acquisition price was never revealed. The Oatley family have spent hundreds of millions of dollars upgrading its tourism infrastructure, including reconnecting power from the mainland after it was accidentally cut. The Oatleys developed the luxury resort Qualia, which opened in 2006, and also built the Hamilton Island Yacht Club and Villas, as well as spending $45 million on the Hamilton Island Golf Club. Unlike other Queensland tourism resorts, Hamilton Island is attractive to investors because it sports an international runway. And 500 health professionals have demanded industry superannuation fund HESTA publicly denounce Woodside's sanctioning of the Trion oil field development and commit to a time frame for divesting from the oil giant over greenwashing concern. In a letter to HESTA Chief Executive Debbie Blakey, the doctors, nurses and allied health workers accused the fund of failing to live up to its claims of climate leadership, calling for action within a fortnight. The Superfund put Woodside and Santos 12 months ago on its watch list, meaning they need to show they were improving their emissions reduction or risk divestment. But members said HESTA had since failed to escalate its concerns effectively with 
listed companies. Woodside's Trion decision in June was, was an egregious step in the wrong direction and showed the company was moving in the opposite direction to emissions reduction, members wrote, meaning Hester's engagement approach had failed. If the letter comes as Superfund members get more active in pushing Superfund for climate action, Hester is already facing a legal claim from a member that its lack of pressure on fossil fuel giants Woodside and Santos to clean up their accidents to greenwashing, and it and 19 other funds received legal letters in April from members concerned with their investment in Santos's $5.8 billion Barossa gas project. The consumer and investment watchdogs are also cracking down on greenwashing, companies lying about how environmentally friendly their investments, products or practices are, and super funds specifically are in their sights. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission is suing Mercer, Active Super and Vanguard in separate greenwashing cases over their investment selection and has warned it is investigating several more super funds and trustees. Hester, like many funds, justifies its holdings in fossil fuel companies despite its own green commitments by promising to be active investors and push these outfits towards a faster energy transition, but members wrote this was failing with Woodside. Woodside's decision to go ahead with Trion shows it has failed to heed Hester's request for 1.5 degrees alignment and increased pressure. The fund must now implement its escalation framework to the fullest extent, the members wrote. With the assess, monitor and vote steps of Hester's engagement framework exhausted, they wrote, it must now consider divestment as there has been no evidence of change from Woodside. And one of Rupert Murdoch's top lieutenants has warned that AI threatens a tsunami of job losses in the media and could crush readers under a weight of maggot-ridden mind mould. News Corporation Chief Executive Robert Thompson told a conference in San Francisco that the rapid rise of artificial intelligence was epochal. Thompson said that AI will lead to a tsunami of job losses. From 2008 to 2020, 57% of newsroom jobs in, in the United States have been lost, he said. We're facing another wave, in this case a tsunami, potentially, of job losses because of the impact of AI. And these are not just jobs loss, but it's insight loss. And so it's impact that all media companies understand the impact, but also it's incumbent on the big AI players to understand their impact. While warnings about AI job losses are not limited to newsrooms, Thompson warned that there was a greater societal risk that we will become deluged by a, by a stream of AI-generated rubbish. People have to understand that AI is essentially retrospective. It's about permutations of pre-existing contact. And the danger is, it's rubbish in, rubbish out. And in this case, rubbish all about, Thompson said. Instead of elevating and enhancing, what you might find is that they have this ever-shrinking cycle of sanity surrounded by a reservoir of rubbish. That, instead of the insight that AI can potentially bring, it will evolve to essentially a maggot-ridden mind mould. Concerns about technology are not new. Rupert Murdoch has spent much of the last decade and a half at war with Google, claiming the internet giant has been ripping off his content. The Australian media tycoon has called the search engine a parasite and kleptomaniac, accusing it of stealing work from a newspaper empire that includes The Times, The Sun, The Wall Street Journal and The New York Post. And Gina Reinhardt has not ruled out launching a bid to rival Albemarle's $6.6 billion takeover tilt of Liontown Resources after confirming she now holds a strategic stake in the West Australian Lithium Prize. Mrs Reinhardt's Hancock prospecting revealed late on Monday that it has 7.72% stake in Liontown and intends to have a say in the future of one of the world's biggest lithium projects. The private company controlled by Australia's richest person indicated it may seek a seat on the Liontown board and provide mining firepower to Liontown's flagship Kathleen Valley lithium project. Mrs Reinhardt also signalled her interest in moving downstream in lithium and a willingness to work with other Liontown investors, chiefly Albemarle, on that front. Hancock's disclosure comes hours after Liontown announced it allowed New York-listed Albemarle into its data room to undertake exclusive due diligence for four weeks. West Perth headquartered Hancock said there were still risks associated with bringing Kathleen Valley into production. 
In a $300 million share market raid, Hancock boosted its stake from 4.9% to nearly 8% last week. The stock closed at $3.01 on Monday, just above the Albemarle offer pitch of $3 a share. The move on Liontown represents Mrs Reinhardt's biggest foray into lithium so far. She's a long-time shareholder in Vulcan Energy and an investor in Delta Lithium on top of a lithium exploration venture in WA involving the Indian government. Liontown has offtake agreements in place until 2030 for the bulk of the spotamine. It plans to start producing at Kathleen Valley within the next 12 months. Albemarle intends to honour those offtake deals with Ford, Tesla and LG Energy Solution if its takeover bid is successful. And the Albanese government looks set to pass its signature housing policy through Parliament this week after offering a $1 billion sweetener to the Greens as the minor party dropped its key demand for a residential rent freeze. But the breakthrough, with a new fund in hand into the National Housing and Investment Finance Corporation for spending this financial year, could exacerbate supply chain and capacity constraints, according to economists. Describing the plan as a drop in the ocean for much-needed new supply, AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver warned a huge pipeline of works already existed. The main problem is shortfalls of materials and particularly shortages of workers, he said. Right now we're having trouble trying to build something like 165,000 dwellings a year. The reality is we need at least 220,000 to keep up with underlying demand. It's all pie in the sky if we don't have the means to build them. The deal announced by Green's leader, Adam Band, and housing spokesman Max Chandler-Mather will give Labor immediate Senate support for the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund bill. It ends months of delay and comes after the government earlier promised an extra $2 billion in immediate funding to the state for public housing in June. The stalemate had even prompted Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to threaten an early double dissolution. The Greens said they would still push for a nationally coordinated rent freeze. Their size on the Senate crossbench means they could threaten speedy passage of petroleum resources rent tax changes and plans to wind back tax concessions for people with more than $3 million in superannuation. The Greens say that latter change must come with rules to require super contributions on paid parental leave. The rent freeze plan is opposed by all state and territory governments. Both, state, both sides claim Monday's deal is a win, and the bill is set to fly through the upper house with support from crossbenchers, including David Pocock and Jackie Lambie. And the country's biggest superannuation fund has acquired a minority stake in Vantage, joining global alternative investment manager Digital Bridge, which remains the majority shareholder. Vantage is a portfolio of hyperscale data centre campuses, includes facilities across Europe and in South Africa. The company recently outlined plans to enter the London market with 75 megawatts of capacity across two campuses. Australian Super's big push into data centres, expanding a $40 billion infrastructure portfolio, comes as a take-up of AI drives massive growth in data centre development and an exponential increase in the size of these centres. And Australia's biggest health company, CSL, is aiming to crack the US $21.6 billion, that's $33.54 billion Aussie asthma market development of drug to stop inflammation in the lungs that triggers the chronic respiratory condition. The therapy is set to highlight CSL, the third biggest company on the ASX behind BHP and Commonwealth Bank, in the minds of consumers. Given more than 10% of Australia's population, or 2.7 million people, suffer from asthma. Crucially, the drug called Trabicabart, or CSL-311, could shift people away from long-term use of additional steroid therapies usually administered with an inhaler and prevent side effects which can range from impaired growth in children to cataracts. Chief Scientific Officer Andrew Nash said the aim was to deliver more personalised treatment for those with severe uncontrolled asthma than conventional therapies. 
The asthma treatment is a recombinant antibody that blocks a family of receptors halting the inflammatory response in the lungs that causes severe asthma attacks. This compares with current antibody therapies for asthma, which target just one receptor. It's expected it will take another five years for the asthma drug to be publicly available. It must pass three phases of clinical trials and gain regulatory approval before it can be sold for widespread use. It was developed in partnership with SA Pathology Centre for Cancer Biology, which has been working with CSL for the past 20 years. CSL, which has a market value of almost $130 billion, flagged the therapy in 2019, but it hasn't been able to start a phase one clinical trial until now, after the pandemic delayed the recruitment of patients for the study. The company, which was established 100 years ago as a government-owned Commonwealth Serum Laboratory before it was floated on the ASX in the 1990s, spends about $1 billion on research and development each year, fueling a global suite of life-saving drugs and vaccines. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Ivan Kurik, the Head of Commercial, Developers and Agency at the main group. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. If you like talking business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongettler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leonleongettler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week.